I do want to recognize these men and women up here leading us in song and worship in the prelude. We need to remember to thank them from time to time. They get here early. They put in their time during the week. Uh, John has to agonize trying to figure out what in the world is he preaching on Sunday and can I find a song that matches that in any way? Not an easy task, I will, I will tell you. But um, I just want to remind you all to, to thank them as you have the opportunity. Before we continue, I want to turn, actually we're going to turn to Mark, even though we're going to start this morning with Psalm 49, because I want to talk briefly, very briefly, about a mystery, a mystery that Paul writes is profound in Ephesians chapter 5. It is a profound mystery, he says, and he is referring to the fact that marriage actually refers to and paints a picture for us of Christ and his church. Jesus had said in Mark chapter 10 that from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so when we see the war against marriage today, it is a war against Christ. And when we see a marriage that paints a picture for us of how Christ faithfully loves his church, we want to honor that. And in our midst today, as many of you know, we have uh, Marge and Bob Schmidt, who just celebrated their 70th, 70th wedding anniversary. And their, their seats, which I think have their names written on them, are right over there. They certainly have their impression in them because they sit there every week. So if you don't know Barb and, uh, Bob and Marge Schmidt, that's them sitting over there, who absolutely would not, I'm sure, have wanted me to acknowledge them. But, you know, when God provides something like that for the church to see... We do need to acknowledge that, and we do need to recognize the beauty of what God has given us in life and marriage, and then how that reflects to the faithfulness of Jesus to his church as he puts up with us in our ups and downs and things we do and say, and yet he still loves us faithfully day in and day out. We, well, one, one other just quick announcement. You know that Pastor Banoush is coming from Kosovo on October 15th. So is Mitch Carlson from Japan. That will be a mission Sunday. Uh, Jarrett Johnson wanted me to let you know if you want to spend time with Banoush, who's actually going to spend a couple days with us, let him know. He's filling out his schedule. He obviously would like to meet with anyone who would like to meet with him. We'll have a potluck that day. We're moving our potluck to October 15th. So you will have a chance to talk to him and to talk to Mitch and hear more about what they're doing beyond what they say in the church service. Now we're going to turn to Psalm 49. And uh, the song that we just sang kind of had a line in it that sort of highlights why we're reading this particular psalm. And that is, uh, this psalm is written really just as a warning to those who put their trust in anything in this life other than Jesus Christ, right? Riches can't do it for you. Nothing can do it for you. But it appears to us, and we'll see this when we turn to our passage in Acts, and we see Gamaliel's faulty wisdom, that we often see this success in life and think God must be blessing that, not those who are faithful. So this is one of many psalms we could have picked. There's a common theme in a lot of them. So Psalm 49. 
Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come humbly before you this morning. Grateful that we can lift our voice to you through the sacrifice made for us by your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that by his Spirit, we worship you this morning. Lord, we pray that you do give us understanding, that you give us wisdom, that you open the truths of Scripture to our hearts and our minds, that you shape our lives and bring them ever closer to conformity with the image of Christ. Lord, we pray this morning that our hearts will be filled with praise and acknowledgement that we stand because of your gift of life, and we will stand for all eternity for the gift of your Son. Lord, help us this morning to glorify you with our singing and our praise and the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you guys are all right who sat in the back. I'm preaching back here today. No, I ran out of batteries, so. <laughs> Which might have been a blessing for others of you. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I was going to look for that. There's a line in that song we just sang that really summed up Acts, really, when the, when the church of Christ was born and the Spirit lit the flame and the truth from old was proclaimed, and that's really what we've seen in the first five chapters of Acts, and we'll continue to see it through the end. In the 1600s, the, the Puritan Thomas Watson, a famous preacher and writer, he captured this wonderful truth 
that all Christians, right, every person who knows that they've been saved by Jesus, who understands what Christ did for us to bring us into his family, he wrote, every Christian is not content to go to heaven alone, but wants to take others there. That should fuel us, right? I mean, we're not content to know that we've been saved and so we want to sneak off to heaven on our own, but we want to take other people there with us. And the church, the gathered believers, as the body of Christ, continues that mission of Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost. And so we never lose sight of this primary mission that every Christian embraces is we follow Jesus and go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything Jesus has said. We embrace that, but some people, we know, get to do this in a relatively easy way. They, they get uh, responses and they get praise from people and it seems like life goes pretty well. But for others, God has ordained a much more difficult path. And for the apostles, as we see, the doors that are often opened for them to proclaim the gospel are actually prison doors, not easy doors. In fact, Jesus had said to them as they were his eager disciples, he said in Matthew 10, beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, for the sake of Christ, to bear witness before them. See, bearing witness to Jesus Calling people to turn from sin and turn to Jesus for life and life eternal. It's never done for our glory. It's always done for Christ's sake. It's done for his glory. And the means that he ordains for us, the doors he opens, the doors he closes, are not always going to be easy. And so this morning we'd return to Acts chapter 5 and to the events that surround the public arrest of the apostles who were standing preaching the good news of Jesus and their imprisonment and now their trial for talking to everybody about the gospel. Now we're going to begin in verse 30, but I want to read from verse 27 just to make sure that we have the context. And so we'll recall from last week that the apostles were preaching. They had been arrested on the temple grounds. They had put in, been put in public prison. Everybody was aware of this. And then we know an angel of the Lord appeared to them. God sent his angel who opened the doors, set them free, but told them, go right back. Don't lose sight of this mission. Go right back and start teaching everybody about the person and work of Jesus so they will know him. Now they were doing this and the temple guard had to go and approach them again. And they came willingly to be questioned by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, we remember, is the, both the civil and the religious leadership in Jerusalem. It was, in essence, their government, their local government. And it's now assembled with these very eager Christians, excited for Jesus, standing before them, the apostles. And here we pick up in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. 
And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Before before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew some, <clears throat> some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that we too would be taken over, overwhelmed, that the Christ, your anointed one, the Savior, is Jesus, and that we would be like these apostles and speak boldly of him. Father, open our hearts and minds to your word today. Illuminate your text by your spirit. Let us see it. Let us live by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you see the four headings before you, but before we get to those headings, I don't want us to miss a lesson that appears when we look at the overall situation here. You have to keep in mind and really try to put yourselves in in a way, in that scenario, the apostles have now been arrested three times by the exact same group. These were men of power. They were men of reputation. These were the religious leaders. These were the people that you looked to and said they know the way of God, and so they seem to have that power. It included the high priest and the high priestly family. It included the scribes, the experts in Scripture, the experts of the law. It had both the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the leading elders of the tribes of Israel. Three times. The apostles had already shared the gospel with them. Multiple times. They had called these men to repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins giving them the green light. Here you can find Jesus, you can be saved, you can be forgiven, you can know God. And these men keep violently rejecting Jesus. And so it brings us to this point. And what do we see that the apostles prayer-fueled, remember they kept gathering with the church to pray, prayer-fueled, biblically-based, you go back, remember they're reciting scripture to themselves, spirit-filled Response. What is their response when brought before this group under threat for the third time? And it's simple. It's the gospel. It is the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. It is just boldly sharing the gospel again and again and again. In the face of rejection, in the face of hostility, they simply share the love of Christ which is made known to us by the gospel, by what he has done to save us. 
And so we can't miss this lesson because one of our biggest challenges in following Jesus is that we too easily take offense, personal offense, at rejection. And then we start playing God in a way in our minds. We don't necessarily consciously do this, but we determine the outcome. So we say things like, they'll never repent. They'll never turn to Christ. They'll never believe in him. And so we begin to make people our enemy. We make people our enemy, and we forget what God has revealed to us in Ephesians 6, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, people can hurt us, people can reject Christ, but the real issue is always spiritual. And you see this played out in Acts. I'll give you an example. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are arrested for preaching the gospel, and the guard hated them and kept them in prison. And then you turn the page, and what you see is that same guard is loving them. He is treating their wounds. He is feeding them. He is housing them in his own house with his family. And what was the difference? The difference was the gospel, Jesus Christ. He believed. And so we must approach the world knowing that nobody is beyond the transforming power of the gospel. So Christians can't fall into the trap of reacting as if people are ever the enemy. They might be confused, they might be deceived, they might be lost souls in need of salvation, they need repentance, they need faith, they need Jesus Christ. And you see this in the apostles. We remember Jesus said, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. What are we to do? Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. Behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That's quite a command. It's not optional. It's not how we feel. It's not based on how we feel. It's a command. For all who follow Jesus. And now as we turn to the apostles, you see them model this truth for us. We need to be like the apostles. We have to turn to Jesus for strength. We have to speak biblical truth knowing that the Lord is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right? Peter writes this in 2 Peter. And so we see this Christ-honoring biblical attitude that is displayed by the apostles as they come at the beginning of our text, and we're going to cover it in those four headings that you see. The gospel proclaimed, and then really the next three headings are just the three responses. Hostility and anger, indifference, who cares? Your faith is your faith, that's good for you, and saving faith that is modeled for us in their lives. Right now, what they are facing is men who had all the power, seemingly had all the power. They could take away their freedom, they could lock them up, they could physically harm them, and they ultimately do by beating them, but they could even take away their life. And we saw last week, the apostles made that powerful declaration that we must obey God rather than men. We have to keep proclaiming this truth to the lost. They had every right to be afraid. Don't miss this, they're just men. They had every right to be afraid. They had every, every ounce of them must have wondered what would happen next. They could have gone silent, but they knew. They walked with Jesus who said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And I heard a modern example of this a week or two ago. I listened to an interview 
It was a great interview with the special forces operator. I love these kind of interviews. He was one of the men in Benghazi who ran in to save people. And he was asked if he was afraid that night because he was facing certain death. And he said, no, not at all. The interviewer, who was a former Navy SEAL himself, was actually surprised and pressed him on this, thinking that he was just being you know, falsely brave, like a bravado. And he said, no, not at all. I wasn't afraid. I'm a Christian. I belong to Jesus Christ. And he said, there was only two outcomes that night. Both of them depended on God. I would either survive and I would have the joy of being reunited with my wife and daughter. Or I would die and I would have the insurmountable joy of being with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for all eternity. And I know that either outcome was entirely in the hands of God. I had no fear. Now, that was amazing. It's something we should follow, but that seems to sum up the fearlessness of Peter as he began to respond to these men because he spoke boldly in calling out these men's sins, pointing them to the gospel for their forgiveness, their salvation, and eternal life because he knew, and we all must know this, there is no other way. You can leave people in their sin and they will suffer for that for all eternity, or you can love them and lead them to repentance. And that can come at our own risk. And that was what Peter did. Now he proclaims the gospel. And there is a basic pattern to the gospel that is presented every time in the first five chapters of Acts. Uh, We shouldn't miss this. It always starts with the fact uh, that everyone is a sinner, right? All of sin falls short of the glory of God. Everybody stands guilty, desperately in need of a savior. We can't save ourselves. But God acted. God sent his Christ. He sent his son uh, who paid the eternal debt for anyone who will turn to him, anyone who will repent of sin and believe in Jesus because Jesus paid the debt in full by dying in substitution, for us on that cross, bearing the wrath of God we deserve against our sins. And that atonement, the apostles boldly declare that atonement, that payment for sin, it was accepted by God in full, and he demonstrated that acceptance powerfully because he rose Jesus from the grave. And of that, the apostles were witnesses. He appeared to many witnesses. He ascended into heaven to the right hand of God, and he will return again. And so on the basis of that gospel, they consistently call people to turn from sin and turn to Jesus, follow him as Lord, give your life to him. Because the promise, John 3, is that whoever believes in Jesus is never condemned, is not condemned. And the apostles are motivated because they know the sad reality for those who reject Jesus is in the rest of that verse, John 3, 18, that whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Peter, spirit-filled, scripture-filled, he starts where the modern world will tell you never to start. He starts with sin. Nobody will repent if they don't know that they stand in opposition to God. He didn't waffle about. He was fearless in repeating the very sin, the very offense for which the Sanhedrin had just indicted him. And instead he flipped it and pointed out their guilt in denying Christ and sending him to death. In verse 31, he boldly says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. His words here are not haphazard. It's not by mistake that Peter chooses these words. They are rooted in the Old Testament. His opening reminds them, we have a common heritage, and the fact is there is only one true God. 
Exodus 3.15, they draw everything from Moses at this time, and it's a God who spoke to Moses, said, tell all the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he has spoken, he has sent me. Peter is saying to these men, do not pass over this message. There is continuity in God's revelation to us from Genesis all the way to the end. And Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to send a Savior. You're no longer waiting. The Messiah has come. The Christ has come. The seed of the woman who would crush the head of the devil, he has come. And this God, this God, the only God, he raised Jesus. So your denial of him, says Peter, places you in opposition to God, not as his children. It's that last phrase that Peter actually words more carefully. And he's not just describing the fact that Jesus was crucified. That part is true. The words that he uses is pointing us back to Deuteronomy 21. It's pointing us back to the Old Testament where God says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Peter uses these words because this is a greater condemnation to these men because it points out that by them inciting the crowds to cry out, crucify him, that the religious leaders had done something that is so dreadful. They had attempted to use God's word and his promise for their own wicked purposes. This is when people like pick some half-verse proof text to like use against you, right? They, they believed that they could go to that text and they could force God's curse upon Jesus and deny him any element of God's grace and favor, cursed forever. And they knew so little because in bearing that curse, God's plan, Jesus bore our curse. The Bible says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was all part of God's plan, but the Sanhedrin wanted him cursed. They wanted him gone from earth, dead, and not fit for heaven, cursed. But verse 31, but God, you wanted him cursed? God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. They heaped upon Jesus' disgrace. God bestowed upon Jesus the highest honor placing him in the position of power and authority. And the titles that Peter uses, they're simple. We've heard them a million times, but they are so significant. He said God exalted him as leader, as leader. But it's the same word translated in Acts 3.15 as author, author of life. This word is translated in many different ways, but its definition always points to the fact that Jesus is the first. He is the originator. He is the author, the ruler, the leader, the one to whom all authority has been granted in heaven and on earth. It is as Colossians says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is in first place in every aspect of creation and life. He is the Lord. He is the master. He is the leader that we follow. He is the center of our affections. He is the love of our life. And calling him leader in this context carries with it that powerful sense of origination. Jesus is the one who starts or begins something. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus, the founder, same word, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, which was saving his people, 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He came, he began, new life in Christ, first fruits from the dead. We follow him, and Peter says he is the Savior. We refer to Jesus as Savior probably more commonly than anything else. It's only used twice in Acts. This is once. Jesus is Savior. He is Savior because he grants repentance of sins for forgiveness. Repentance, turning away from sin and then turning toward Christ is part and parcel to saving faith. To follow Jesus is to stop following culture, the world, our sinful desires, and to follow the living Christ. Right? And to follow the living Christ means that you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's no crown without the cross. He had to go. And the amazing gifts of faith and repentance for forgiveness of sins are available to anyone, to anyone who will believe for any sin. We can't forget that. For any sin. You have to step back in time and imagine the guilt of these very men who sent Jesus to the cross. Through the Romans, but sent him to the cross. And they were offered forgiveness on the same terms as we are. And the same terms as everyone else is. There is no sin that will not be forgiven if you will just throw yourself at the mercy of God and trust in the finished work of Jesus on that cross. Now the apostles draw them to this wonderful truth, but they don't speak this boldly to the Sanhedrin based on their sense of super spirituality, and they don't base it on feelings or emotions. They actually proclaim this saving truth that all can be saved by following the risen Christ based on two things. Verse 32, we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, the first part of that is interesting because you actually never see any of the opposition go pick at or question the apostles about their being witnesses to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. They never question them on that. They, they can't. They just move past that. But Peter invokes this wonderful second truth about the Holy Spirit who indwells all who follow Jesus. Right? The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God, Romans 8. It is from our adoption as his sons and daughters by faith in Jesus that we actually draw that boldness to speak biblical truth for salvation, to call people to believe in him. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, and he, the Spirit, will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. Be filled with the Spirit, then you can't help but talk of Christ. And Peter here refers in a way that some people probably don't like, actually, in this modern day, to all who are saved as those who obey Jesus. That, that's a, a common phrase in the New Testament. It is actually used several places to refer to salvation. It makes obedience synonymous with saving faith, but it's not in the way that I think we get hung up on. He's not saying to all who obey in some perfect way, right? He's not pointing to perfection. The Bible is clear. We need to turn to Christ daily for forgiveness, right? We confess our sins to the Lord 
Lord Jesus Christ, who's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not one and done. We live our lives as repentant people. It doesn't indicate perfection. It is just indicating that those who follow Christ daily turn to him. We have a spirit-driven desire to please God based on our love of Christ. To be saved means that you have submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, over every aspect of your life. And though we will do it imperfectly, we seek to obey his word in every area of life. Our thoughts, our words, our deeds, we go and we love each other sacrificially, or we try to. We build one another up in the faith. We speak words of encouragement. We love the church because Christ died for the church and we seek to present this church mature, holy, a beautiful bride, all while joyfully acknowledging and resting in the fact that once we believe in Christ, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price and the price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And Peter, there's one other thing here. He makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is granted to every follower of Jesus. Everyone is full of the Spirit when you have been converted to him. Scripture declares anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, Romans 8, 9. It's binary. And we've seen over and over the last two Sundays that our unity as Christians, one family, one body, one church, it stems from this very fact, right? In one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, 1 Corinthians 12. So they've been confronted with these amazing truths. The pathway to salvation is clear. They need a savior and a savior has come. So how do they react? This actually brings us to our last three headings in the text. And this is important because while we choose different words, they're essentially the same three responses we see today to the gospel. Now there's really only two responses, you believe or you don't believe, but we categorize them in different ways. And so you see hostility and anger, you see indifference, and you see saving belief. In the kind of famous book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis famously made this argument that you see repeated often that everybody has to argue that Jesus has to be one of three things. He is either a lunatic for what he professed about himself, or a liar, he said he was the son of God, or he is the Lord and Christ, having come to set us free from the bondage of sin And that he will save all who come to him in repentance and faith. Lewis wrote, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call on him as Lord and God. He's echoing what the Apostle Thomas said to the risen Christ, my Lord, my God, a beautiful thing. So there has to be a decision, and there always is. There's no neutral positions in life. And the first reaction we see is hostility and anger. Hostility and anger at the presentation to these otherwise religious men of the exclusive means of salvation by believing in Jesus Christ. They have essentially presented Jesus, who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so they have gone to them, every person, Right? Every person has to humble himself or herself, come in humility like a child, receive Christ by grace through faith to be saved. But the problem is when sin is confronted in hardened hearts, anger can result because Jesus is the light of the world. And as we read in John, 
People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That is very uncomfortable, and it makes people very angry if they're holding on to their sin. Their first reaction in verse 33, when they heard this, the gospel, when they heard the gospel, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. What a reaction. When biblical truth is presented faithfully, when it is uncompromised, when it is unchanged, when it doesn't play to the emotions of the crowd or the culture or the spirit of the age, the convicting message will provoke a hostile reaction from people who are committed to and who love their sin and don't want to give it up for anything. And that hostile reaction is often encouraged. To quote, I originally had multiple of these, but for time, we'll just quote one. One of the most famous atheists of our day, Richard Dawkins, said this in a speech to, he got applause from the whole audience when he said this. Uh, the question, he refers to religion, though, is, is what people should do when confronted by a Christian who's preaching to them the gospel. And he said, mock them. Mock them, ridicule them, ridicule them in public. Religion needs to be ridiculed with contempt, with hatred, with malice. Put them in their place. So there's nothing new about the response today, and there was nothing new about this response to the apostles. Jesus had even said in John 15, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Here's the kicker. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. If you don't speak to people, they don't know to repent. And when the sins of people are brought to light as offenses against the one true living God, the excuses are gone. They're naked, they're exposed, and this discomfort makes a slave to sin hostile to the very God who will free them. And often that is taken out on his messengers. So if your gospel presentation doesn't cause the world to stand up and take notice, even if people reject the message, if it is not convicting enough to make some people occasionally angry, is it convicting enough ever to bring a person to salvation by repentance and faith, by turning from their sins, by submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, or are we content in this world to give them false assurances and tell them they're okay? And we can't. Well, what happens next is another response, total indifference, total indifference to the gospel. And today, you see this response, I think, all the time. In a postmodern age, you hear things like, well, that's nice. Your truth is your truth. I have a different truth. Or I'm glad your faith helps you. I'm glad it makes you feel better. I have my own beliefs. I'm okay. Of course, the other one, I have no problem with Christianity as long as you keep it to yourself. I have no problem with you being a Christian. Just don't tell me about it. Keep it in church on Sunday morning and make sure your church stays silent too. Well, we see this in the next passage. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up, gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. He said, men of Israel, 
I'm just going to paraphrase because we've read it once before. He basically says, take care what you're about ready to do. Let me give you a couple of examples. There have been other guys who've come and gone. They tried to follow, create followership. They, they were persecuted. They died. They went away. Just ignore this stuff. And then in verse 38, he says, because I tell you, you should keep away from these men. Let them alone. If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. The thing that jumps into my mind is this character in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's great work, and his name in the book is Worldly Wise Man. And Worldly Wise Man draws many Christians away because the wisdom sounds good and it always presents an easier way than what Scripture actually presents. So we see Gamaliel's response here, and at first blush, it actually seems wise. And in some ways, it seems godly. If if God wants this, it'll happen. But you have to realize he is grounding this response in nothing more than worldly wisdom, and it is a wisdom that will actually keep people from salvation. It sounds wise, it sounds smart, it actually sounds more loving and tolerant, words we like, it's easy to digest. But it's not neutral. It is still a decision to deny Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, Gamaliel was the most prominent rabbi in that historical period, well-known. We know his name best because of his most famous student, right? The Apostle Paul says he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel in Acts 22. That's a credential today, like saying you went to Harvard or Yale. It would buy you some credibility with the right crowds. So when we look at his response, we can ask, what's good about his response and what's bad about his response? Well, the good, the part that might get us excited, is he believes in God. He reflects a strong belief in God, and he recognized that God, by his divine providence, does govern all affairs in life and history, that that he is overseeing them. But here's where he strays away and begins to apply worldly wisdom, the way we think God should act versus the way God reveals himself in Scripture. He basically lands on this principle that if it works, then it's blessed by God. And if it fails, it's not. And so how would I encourage you to measure that? By your own opinion, your experience, your narrow view of this moment in history. And of course, he does that by pointing to two examples Theodos, we actually don't know much about Theodos. You can speculate all day long, but it was a super common name, and there were a bajillion rebellions against the Romans during that period. Judas, we know quite a bit about. He led a revolt. It was really a revolt against the rule and taxation of the Romans, the census, and that was in AD 6. And both men perished, and so did their followers, and so he's saying, see, we can tell. We can tell what God is doing. But in all this wisdom... Even a belief that God ordains the means and the ends, he makes a fatal flaw. He is what we would call a pragmatist, a big word. It's a disease that affects the church even today. But what it is, is whatever works must be God's will. Whatever works must be blessed and ordained by God. And the measurement that he uses demonstrates his failure to seek truth. Because that standard is decidedly false. We can't look to a cult that is growing and say, we'll follow them. We have to turn to the word of God to do this. It's false because God sees the end from the beginning. He knows all things. And he works in ways that always bring him glory 
Glory by saving people, glory by calling us to holiness, glory by building up his church, but he may act in ways that take centuries or millennia. And so we may not see the good and perfect outcome in our lifetime or in our place. And it's why when we experience hardship and suffering and things like that, sometimes it's harder and harder unless you're grounded in God's word, unless you turn to Christ, because that is the only way to know what God actually blesses, is to turn to the word of God. What we see around us, what we see in the world, just like the psalm we opened with, it can be deceptive to us. Let me give you a real world example. John Piper and his son Abraham Piper. Many know John Piper, famous preacher, writer, well-known. And Abraham is equally well-known, an apostate who hates God and hates Christ's church. Now, on social media, they have almost the same number of followers, according to a newspaper article I read this morning. John proclaims the gospel. He's true to it. He's notable. Abraham speaks against Christ. He speaks against biblical truth. He makes fun of the church. He makes fun of Jesus Christ as Lord. They're absurd videos. Should we wait and see which one gets more followers to determine who's actually blessed by God? No, of course not. Gamaliel's wisdom doesn't work. You can look throughout the Bible. Wicked kings prosper. Evil nations often arise. Sinful people seem to go on from good to better without being judged in this life. Our psalm this morning opened with that that thing. You can look at Psalm 10 if you do Mishane's reading plan. That was yesterday. Same concept. God often uses the flourishing of the wicked for his purposes, but always with the promise that in the end, when you take an eternal horizon, judgment will come. But what we see sometimes is his people suffer and appear to be defeated in the interim. You could pick any one of the prophets, but the prophet Habakkuk did this same thing. God revealed to Habakkuk that the Babylonians, a wicked nation, absolutely wicked, would experience great success and be raised up for his purpose. And And they were, they conquered Israel. But at the same time, God tells the prophet, they will be defeated and face judgment. So if you were just watching, it looked like what they were doing was right and God was blessing them, but the Israelites were being conquered. So we weren't to follow the Babylonians. If you look to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, the nation of Israel was prospering when you had King Ahab and the wicked queen Jezebel, and they were steeped in idolatry. And Elijah feared for his life, and he said, I'm the only one left. God must be blessing this nation, this apostate nation, and I'm the only one left, and God said, no. I've kept 7,000, a tiny number for sure, but 7,000 who are faithful. Those who looked to be losing were the ones who were blessed. Those who were winning would ultimately come to judgment. We spent a great deal of time, I did a full sermon, I can't remember when, on Psalm 73, and I'll just let you read that, but Asaph almost falls prey to this same thinking. The prosperous all around him, they must be right, I must be wrong. He begins that psalm saying, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, I look at these people that I'm in church with and they struggle, they're suffering, and I look at all the wicked people who hate God and they're, they're going from better to better to better. They have everything I want. They seem to be blessed. I seem to suffer. 
And God reveals to him when he turns to scripture, when he joins the congregation in worship in the sanctuary, that that's not at all the case. Their prosperity was leading them away from salvation, not toward it. What appeared to work in the world would not work for all eternity. So Gamaliel, returning to him, he's fine sitting back and watching. Just uh, let's not, I mean, that certainly doesn't want to murder the apostles and heap condemnation on himself. He'd be part of that group. So he's fine sitting back and watching. What should he have done? Gamaliel was a religious leader, a Pharisee. He knew the scriptures. Here's what his response should have been. He should have said, put those men outside, let me talk to you. Listen, we're the religious leaders in Israel. We know the God of our fathers. We know he promised to send his Messiah. We need to inquire into what they're saying. If Jesus rose from the grave, as these men said he did, we must repent. We need to repent. We need to believe. We need salvation. We need to trust in Christ because he paid that price. And if this is true, we need to become witnesses like these 12 and go out and tell the nation because he grants repentance. But he did none of these things. He wasn't convinced of his need for a savior. He was quite content in his religion. And so his solution seems wise, but it only leads to eternal death. It does not bring him to salvation. Now he apparently was fine when you come to the flogging, the beating that comes next, right? It says, they listened to him and agreed with him. Then we read in verse 40, when they called him in, they beat them. They beat them. And they charged or they threatened them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. That doesn't sound neutral at all to me. Well, it's here that we get to see the third response, which is true saving faith. What does it look like? How does it manifest itself in someone consumed by their love for Christ and their love for people and wanting to proclaim the gospel so that all could be saved? Well, verse 41, and sometimes I wish that the Bible would be more graphic for us because when it just says they left the presence of the council rejoicing, we get this idea that they're just like, hey, we got out of here. They just got beaten, right? They either got 39 lashes that lacerated their, their, their front and their back, or they got beaten with a cane. Either one, these guys weren't walking out unscathed. It says, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple, right back, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Do you think Gamaliel exhibits ordinary human wisdom? What we would expect? And what we read of the apostles runs directly counter to the emotions, the thoughts, the feelings we would expect of any ordinary person in this situation. First, just let me ask, was, was their evangelism successful? We love numbers. How many conversions did they get? Zero. They got beaten. They got beaten and kicked out. So, were they successful by our count? Maybe not. Were they successful by God's count? Absolutely. They obeyed him. They proclaimed the gospel. But we'd expect them maybe to be discouraged if they were ordinary. 
But they're not ordinary people. They're not ordinary people. Not because they're apostles. You're not ordinary people. Not if you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Not if you've been purchased at the price of God, sending his only son to live and die for you. You're not ordinary. You walk with the Spirit. We can be like Paul. He's the one-time student of Gamaliel and persecutor of the church. And he could say, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. See, we often get discouraged. Maybe want to give up just because people won't listen to us speak of Jesus or they reject him, but it, it, in reality, it always feels like they're rejecting us. They, they say the mean things to us, not uh, to Christ, and it hurts, and it hurts, and everybody's been there, I think. But look at the apostles. They rejoiced. When that happened, they rejoiced. They celebrated because they were worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus. They could suffer with him. They could share his sufferings in some small way. Peter would later write in 1 Peter, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It is a wonderful thing. And we can easily lose sight of this, right? Jesus gave us that, that precious example, the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. And so he tells of these people who would at first appear to believe the gospel. They would be excited. They would hang out in the church. John will later write in 1 John. They may even be leaders in the church. Uh, they would speak of Jesus. They would sing our songs. But then when life got hard, where they faced opposition, their faith would wither it would disappear. It would be like a plant that grew quickly in rocky soil. It had no depth of roots. But then we look at the apostles. Their faith had been put to the test in ways that ours probably never will be. But their love of Christ shone through. They never stopped teaching his word. They never stopped. They never stopped preaching the saving gospel, calling all to turn to Jesus, the living Christ, who will forgive and save all who call upon his grace and mercy. The gospel they preached, the gospel is the same one that we are called to proclaim today. It won't leave us unscathed in this world, but it also should never leave people with the option to remain neutral. And that means that at sometimes we will rejoice because we welcome brothers and sisters into Christ's family and we will celebrate that. And at other times, we might just suffer for it. And in both cases, we rejoice because Paul wrote that all people who faithfully proclaim the saving message of Jesus Christ, that we are sinners, but there is a solution God provided in his son. We don't have to face that dreadful eternal problem. We can repent and believe. All people who proclaim that message, the message of Christ to the lost, are the aroma of Christ to God among both, 
among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. A stench. You stink to them. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Do you see the beauty of Jesus, the sweet aroma of life? And have you trusted in him? Do you walk with him? Do you speak of him as you would your first love, boldly, truthfully? We won't get the world's applause for that. But like Watson said, where we started, we dare not wish to enter heaven's gates alone. Not without being accompanied by every man, woman, and child that we're able to reach in this short life and point them to the love of Christ shown to us on that cross and call them to faith in him that they might join us for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for Jesus. Lord, there's nothing that we could have done to deserve your favor your mercy, your grace, and your love. And yet we stand back and marvel that you chose to save sinners like us by pouring out your wrath on your Son in our place. Lord, let us never lose sight of the wonder of being saved by the grace of Jesus simply by our faith in him. God, give us the courage in this world to stand for him, to show the world through our lives and through our words that there is a better way, that there is a pathway to eternal life, to joy, and even to understanding our sufferings now. God, use us to love those around us and let the love of this church for one another demonstrate the love of Christ to our community. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.